And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we've got a great hour for you today. We're obviously going to be catching up on some of the news, breaches of the week, so absolutely off the rails the past week or so. But we're also going to be talking about misinformation and disinformation in the deep dive. As you know, we've got an election coming up here in less than a week, about a week or so, as actually I'm, I'm sitting here live on Halloween, so a week and a day. But I'm not sure when you're going to hear this, as it basically gets pushed out through syndication to various radio shows and all of that, or radio stations and all of that. So we're going to talk about misinformation disinformation online it is so important so stick around you're not going to want to miss that and as always let's start with the news and in international news we have to talk about iran because iran's nuclear secrets have just been leaked this is crazy it's coming from cyberscoop and i think this is an important one so heads up the hack and leak of emails and other materials basically this past weekend or two weekends ago or so as you're listening to this related to iran's nuclear program was the result of quote unauthorized access from a specific foreign country that is according to the Iranian government. Now, this statement came a day after a group calling itself Black Reward claimed to have hacked and stolen information relating to, quote, Iran's public and private conversations with the International Atomic Energy Agency, along with other materials, including construction plans, management and operational schedules and the passports and visas of Iranian and Russian specialists involved in the country's nuclear program. That is basically according to the statement, uh, you know, that we have out here. This is a huge thing. Now, the group posted the materials to its Telegram channel and announced the hack on Twitter urging people to review the files, but with caution given the prevalence of malware in Iranian government systems. Basically meaning, if you're going to download this, you do it at your own risk, you could be infected with Iranian malware. Now, in response to a question sent via Telegram, the group talking to CyberScoop said, and I quote, We are Iranian, and whatever the Islamic Republic says is a lie. We fight against the regime in support of women, life, and freedom, end quote. The message also included the hashtag Masha Amini, which is a reference to the 22-year-old woman that died in police custody on September 16th after being arrested for allegedly violating rules related to how women are supposed to dress in public. Basically, she didn't put her headscarf on. They resisted. Apparently, they beat her. Um, Then she basically ended up in the hospital for three days and died and the Iranian government said oh well she died of a heart attack as opposed to the beating that the morale uh, morality yeah that's what they're called morality police were there now the original message posted by black reward said that they were quote part of the Iranian hacker Iranian hacker community and born from among you this is also according to Google translation because again this is all in Iranian so the group told cyberscoop that it had no connection to any other hacking groups that have claims to that have claimed to have hacked other Iranian entities, quote, what is important for us is the lives of our compatriots and their freedom. Our brothers and sisters who are in prisons, we no longer tolerate the Islamic Republic and fight them in any possible way, end quote. Now, the hack is just the latest target 
in the Iranian government, uh, against the Iranian government in the week of Amini's death, in the wake of Amini's death, excuse me. Multiple groups have claimed hacks, denial of service attacks under the banner of Anonymous, uh, basically starting in September as a result of that. And we have seen essentially the Iranian population melt down in some way as we are seeing protests against the Iranian government. It's amazing to see like uh, schoolgirls, for example, taking off their headscarves and saying, you know, you know, death to the government or death to the leader, you know, these kinds of things just in full view of of men and the morality police and, and everything else. And so I think the world is just watching and waiting to see exactly what's going to happen here. But it looks like they are moving full steam ahead. I think everybody seems to be on board. We may be actually seeing the the underpinnings of the next Iranian revolution here, as essentially these protests and and these uh, I guess anti government uh, forces are are continuing to move on, even though we're about a month and a half now past that initial incident. So it seems to be gaining steam. It seems to be getting support online around the world, and also from Iranian hackers. So that is your Iranian news of the day. We've been sifting through nuclear material from Iran, and it's pretty interesting, and so we'll see where it goes. And in Tesla news, Tesla is actually facing a criminal probe regarding its self-driving claims about its car. Now, this is coming from CNBC, and here's what's going on. Tesla is under criminal investigation in the United States over claims that the company's electric vehicles can drive themselves This is according to three people familiar with this matter. Now, the U.S. Department of Justice launched um, the previously undisclosed probe last year following more than a dozen crashes, some of them fatal, involving Tesla's driver assistance program known as Autopilot, which was activated during all of these accidents. Now, as early as 2016, Tesla's marketing materials have touted Autopilot's capabilities. On a conference call that year, Elon Musk said that Tesla's uh, basically, he described it as probably better. Better than a human driver, Elon Musk obviously being Tesla's CEO at the time. Now, last week, Musk said on another call that Tesla would soon release an upgraded version of, quote, full self-driving, end quote, software, allowing customers to travel, quote, to your work, your friend's home, to the grocery store without you touching the wheel, end quote. Now, a video that is currently on Tesla's website says the person in the driver's seat is only there for legal reasons. He is not doing anything. The car is driving itself. However, the company has also explicitly warned drivers that they must keep their hands on the wheel and maintain control of their vehicles while using autopilot. The Tesla technology is designed to assist with things like steering, braking, speed, and lane changes, but its features, quote, do not make the vehicle autonomous, end quote, according also to their website as well. Now, such warnings could complicate any case that the Justice Department may bring, according to the sources familiar with this. Federal and California safety regulators are already scrutinizing whether claims about autopilot's capabilities and the system's design imbue customers with a false sense of security inducing them to treat Teslas as truly driverless cars and become complacent behind the wheel with potentially deadly consequences. The Justice Department investigation potentially represents a more serious level of scrutiny because the possibility of criminal charges against the company or individual executives may be part of this. Now, As part of this probe as well, the Justice Department prosecutors in Washington and San Francisco are examining whether Tesla misled consumers, investors, and regulators by making unsupported claims about its driver-assistant technology capability, and there you go. Now, officials conducting the inquiry 
could ultimately pursue criminal charges, seek civil sanctions, or close a probe without taking any action, depending on what they find. And so this is obviously going to be something that is very interesting, very concerning. But I do think that just anecdotally, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I don't play one on the radio either, that that it seems like uh, Tesla has some culpability here. I've seen a ton of different YouTube videos of people being like, well, I'm just going to go hop in the back seat and let the Tesla drive me down the highway or wherever they're going. And so that obviously is a huge, huge thing. They also have a parking lot feature, from what I understand, where the Tesla, like if you hit the button, the Tesla will actually start itself, pull out of the spot and come find you in the parking lot. So so they're moving down this road. But if this is causing crashes or a false sense of security because it's not at 100 percent, there you go. So we'll see what we'll see what happens here. But I think this is going to be an interesting one. And obviously, I'll keep you informed. But that is your Tesla news of the week. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this in a couple of shows, and I keep being reminded to do this, and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please, Follow me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to basically get a shout out from you and, and you know, send me a message or whatever it is. Uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so that is my quick blurb. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, please, by all means, send it to me, and I'm glad to give you a shout-out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I am more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout-out on the air. With that, let's begin. As always, and as always, I want to thank the people that sent me a lot of this information. It always helps me out. And that would be Barrett Peterson, Chris Fallon, Mark McGovern, Jay Dance, and Sanders Slidnerink, as well as Jacqueline Wolf. Thank you so very much. And if you have a tip for me, please send it my way and I'll give you a shout out here and also on my nationally syndicated radio show as well. And with that, no time to lose. We're going to dive right into a big one. Let's talk about U.S. Bank, one of the largest banks in the United States. They are notifying some of their customers about personal information that was accidentally shared by one of the bank's third-party vendors, according to basically draft letters that were posted to the California Attorney General's website. Now, about 11,000 customers were affected after a vendor, a collections recovery group, accidentally shared this information, and that is according to a U.S. Bank uh, bank spokesperson talking to NBC News. Now, this incident uh, occurred on September 27 and involved the sharing of information including names, social security numbers, closed account numbers, and outstanding balances. Customers with closed U.S. Bank credit card accounts were affected according to this. So if you have a closed credit card from U.S. Bank, heads up to you. Moving on. 
Let's talk about the Israeli Shah's political party. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. They had a serious uh, data breach or security breach, I should say, in their computerized election management system as they left it vulnerable to basically easy exploitation, even by those with only basic knowledge of cybersecurity. This is according to the experts that reviewed this. Now, the breach of this system, which contains not just the data of Shah's supporters and activists, but a but actually information on all Israeli citizens who are eligible to vote. This was basically revealed this past Sunday following an anonymous leak received on the Cyber Cyber podcast hosted by Ido Kanan and Noam Rodham. Now, these findings were then verified by a software architect known as Ron Barzik. So there you go. If you have anything to do, or I guess you're an eligible Israeli voter, you might want to check in with the Shah's political party. Now, on top of this, we have to talk about Michigan Medicine because... An attacker used a phishing scam to compromise employee email accounts, and that is according to uh, basically officials at Michigan Medicine, which led to the uh, exposure of uh, 33,850 patients. Now, the scam was conducted between August 15th and 20 through the 23rd of this year. Employees were lured to a web page that was designed to get them to submit their login credentials for Michigan Medicine, and here we are. That was four employee email accounts were also accessed during this period. Now, they discovered the email account were compromised on August 23rd. Basically, what we are talking about here are names, medical record numbers, addresses, dates of birth, diagnostic treatment information, and health insurance information. And there we are. So heads up, Michigan Medicine patients. Moving on, let's talk about Bed Bath & Beyond. They are a large retail outlet that does or rather sells things for your bed, your bath, and apparently beyond here in the United States. I don't know if they're anywhere else. Now, they said this past Friday that a third party had this month improperly accessed its data through a phishing scam by accessing the hard drive of certain shared and certain shared drives of one of their employees. Now, Bed Bath & Beyond also said that they're reviewing the data, that uh, basically the data that was accessed, and they're trying to determine if the drives contain any sensitive information or personally identifiable information as well. Bed Bath & Beyond also added that they have no reason to believe any sensitive or personally identifiable information was accessed But here we are. So this is obviously evolving. Heads up, Bed Bath & Beyond shoppers and employees. You may eventually be entitled to compensation. Moving on, let's talk about Ascension St. Vincent's Coastal Cardiology because on August 15th, uh, basically them out of Brunswick, Georgia, were alerted to a healthcare data breach involving, quote, recently acquired Ascension St. Vincent's Coastal Cardiology's legacy systems, including the electronic medical record. Now, this breach impacted 71,227 individuals. The organization said that it immediately tried to secure all of this, but some of their information has been encrypted. Since it is still encrypted, apparently, they are basically unable to determine what the impact was, but we are assuming name, address, email address, phone number, uh, insurance information, as well as social security numbers if provided, clinical information, and billing insurance information were on those systems. So heads up to you. Ascension St. Vincent's Coastal Cardiology patients out of Brunswick, Georgia. Moving on, let's talk about the Fulton City Police. This is actually an update because they had a data breach discovered last November as the Fulton City Police compromised the personal data of 28,282 people, and that's according to a government data breach notice. Now, information of this breach 
excuse me, uh, basically as a result of what the city of Fulton calls a data event could include your name, social security numbers, identification numbers, personal financial account information, and more. Uh, Fulton Mayor Deanna Michaels also, um, basically her office sent out this notice of... Um, Notice of breach to Maine's attorney general. And there you go. I believe this is in uh, Georgia, but apparently they're saying nine people from Maine were also affected as well. I have no idea why it took them this long to disclose that uh, officially to the government. Moving on. Let's talk about Wake Med Health and Hospitals, because on August 14th of this year, Wake Med filed an official notice of data breach with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And basically, the details right now are kind of sparse, but based on the current federal breach reporting, it's likely that we are talking about names, protected health information, and potentially social security numbers of affected parties. They recently sent out data breach letters to those affected parties. So heads up, Wake Med Health and Hospitals, patients and employees. Moving on. Let's talk about Australian Clinical Labs because they just disclosed a February of this year data breach that impacted its med lab pathology business, exposing the medical records and sensitive information of 223,000 people, I assume mostly, if not all, Australian. Now, while the firm says... It's not aware of any misuse of this stolen information. Um, it is notifying impacted clients uh, individually of what was exposed during this attack. This data breach notification that was published the other day gives the following information. 128,608 Medicare customers along with full names, 28,286 credit card numbers, 12% of which include the three-digit code, and 55% of those cards have been, are actually expired. 17,539 individual medical and health records associated with pathology tests. So if you have anything to do with Australian clinical labs, I'm guessing like they're Australia's lab corp, heads up to you. Moving on, let's talk about Genshin Impact. This is a game developed by a company called Hoyoverse. Over the weekend, huge batches of information were shared online that reve revealed details of new, char new characters, not nude characters, Quests and events from version 3.3 until 3.8. I'm assuming 3.3 through 3.8 are not out yet. Basically, the future plans of the games, the characters, everything just got dumped. Now, Hoyoverse has a DMCA, that's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, striked posts containing information from the data breach, although right now we don't know much more about this. I don't know how this got out. I don't know if it's an employee that said, screw this place, and walking out the door did this. If they got breached, we have no idea. But they had a breach because obviously a whole bunch of information that was proprietary and private to them are now known by their players. So if you play Genshin Impact, you might be able to get a sneak peek Unfortunately, moving on is an update on the Rhode Island Public Transit Authority or RIPTA. And here's what's going on because the attorney generals for the with the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU of Rhode Island, filed a class action lawsuit against RIPTA and United Healthcare England over the handling of their August 2021 healthcare data breach that impacted thousands of individuals. So if you are in Rhode Island and you used RIPTA or United Healthcare, you may soon be entitled to compensation. Thank you, ACLU, for that one. New Mexico is the next place we're going because their Radiology Associates of Albuquerque is next on the list. Now, they're known as RAA Imaging, and they basically informed an undisclosed number of patients of a healthcare data breach involving their PHI, or protected health information. An unauthorized party apparently accessed email accounts at RAA at differing times between December 22nd of 2020 
through July 15th of 2021. So about seven, eight months so worth of illegal entry. Now, the potentially impacted information is names, contact info, social security number, medical conditions, medical history, treatment information, patient account numbers, health insurance, and other possible PHI. So heads up to you, RAA Imaging or Radiology Associates of Albuquerque patients, you also may be entitled to compensation. Moving on, let's talk about Ocean County out of the state of New Jersey. Now, officials there say there was no infarious intent when an Ocean County employee emailed a spreadsheet containing the personal information of about 3,900 deceased Medicaid recipients to another worker. Apparently, the spreadsheet, according to them, was not downloaded by the recipient, nor was it shared with anybody else. That is according to the uh, basically Department of Human Services of New Jersey this past Thursday. The employee to whom the email was sent was not authorized to receive this information, and therefore this is considered a HIPAA breach, even if you're dead you still have protected health information because odds are you've got family. Moving on, let's talk about Twilio. This is unfortunately an update because they are pretty large in cybersecurity and software, but here we are. Um, they, this past week, disclosed that they experienced another quote-unquote brief security incident, this time in June of this year, perpetrated by the same threat actor behind the August attack of Twilio that we talked about, like, literally back. I had to go back and look at my notes. And that, basically, August hack resulted in unauthorized access of customer information. Now, the security event occurred on June 29th. The company said that in, in an updated advisory that they shared this week as part of their probe uh, to this break-in. And I quote, in the June incident, a Twilio employee was socially engineered through voice phishing or vishing to provide their credentials and the malicious actor was able to access customer contact information for a limited number of customers. This is according to Twilio. Now Twilio, as I mentioned, is a major provider of software, but they also are, are the provider of the Authy Authenticator app, which is used by 75 million users for multi-factor authentication. Authy was not affected in this breach, apparently. Uh, the one in August had something like, I think, like 90 users out of 75 million possibly affected. So Authy is still considered secure, and it's a bummer, but here we are. So Twilio heads up your users. Uh, you know, we're not happy with you right now. Let's just put it that way. So with that, let's keep moving on to C Tickets. That's S-E-E -E, Tickets. They're a ticketing service provider. And they disclosed a data breach informing their customers that cyber criminals might have accessed their payment card details via a skimmer on the website. In other words, somebody inserted malicious code. So when you're paying with your credit card on ctickets.com and uh, you're basically giving them your information, a copy of that is going to some jerk who's ripping you off. Now, the internal investigation, and this is crazy, showed that the investigation uh, or the infection, excuse me, happened on June 25th. Of 2019, this exposure and skimming has been going on for over two and a half years. This is absolutely nuts. The customer information that the attackers might have stolen include full name, address, zip code, payment card number, expiration date, and the three-digit code you give them. See, tickets says that social security numbers, state ID numbers, or bank account information uh, basically has not been exposed due to this incident uh, because they are not stored on their systems. But if you have bought anything from see tickets, that's S. EE tickets in the last two and a half years, your credit card is out there. And if you've got the same number, you're going to want to go change that. That's obviously a huge thing. And for the love of God, everybody needs a web application firewall in front of their websites to prevent this kind of stuff and detect these kinds of 
threat. So go get yourself a WAF if you've got a website. Moving on, let's talk about a car dealer uh, group out of the UK known as Pendragon. They are currently the subject of a cyber attack. And get this, they are being held ransom for $60 million US or 54 million pounds. Now, basically, this is huge. Now, the listed firm, they own 160 showrooms across the UK. And uh, obviously, they also they also use the names Evan Hulshaw and Stratstone, uh, you know, at, for their car dealerships. And they basically say that their servers were hit and uh, dark web hackers having stolen 5% of their data. Lockbit 3.0 is now claiming responsibility for this. $60 million. You could probably have better insurance or well one yes you could have definitely cyber insurance but that is a huge hit for cyber insurance and i doubt they've got coverage that high even if they do cover it but you can buy cyber defense strategies that will mitigate these things for way less Keep up with your cyber defense. That's what I'm trying to say here. Next up, we got to talk about media giant Thomson Reuters because everybody's getting hacked these days. Apparently, they left three of their databases open and accessible for anybody to look at. One of these open instances was a three terabyte public-facing Elasticsearch database that contained a ton of sensitive, up-to-date information from across the company's various platforms. The company recognized this issue and fixed it immediately, according to them. Now, the naming of the Elasticsearch indices basically inside their servers suggests that the open instance was used as a logging server to collect vast amounts of data gathered through user-client interaction. In other words, the company collected and exposed thousands of gigabytes of data that researchers believe could be worth millions of dollars on underground criminal forms because of potential access that could give to other systems inside the Thomson Reuters infrastructure. They claim that basically out of these three misconfigured servers, the team informed the company about two were designed to be publicly accessible. The third was a non-production server meant for, quote, application logs from the pre-production implementation environment. Obviously, this is a huge hit. Thomson Reuters is massive. We're going to see where that goes. And we are tracking another possible massive breach. And this is from AT&T. Multiple people alerted me to this. We also happen to track this gang here. But the Everest ransomware gang is claiming that they have hit AT&T. This is developing in the dark web right now. And so we will see what AT&T says. But I'm giving you a heads up if you're hearing this for the first time. Because this literally just started breaking in the last day or two. This will be huge, I think, because AT&T is huge. Tens of millions of customers, all of which may be entitled to compensation. And finally... And we have two finalists for you today. The first one is Liz Truss. She is the shortest living British Prime Minister in UK history. She lasted about three Scaramucci's, 44, 45 days. Now, here's what's going on uh, with Liz Truss. The government, the UK government, has been urged to open an investigation into claims that former Prime Minister Liz Truss' phone was hacked while she was the foreign secretary. So this is before her short stint as prime minister. Now, the Mail on Sunday reported private messages between Ms. Truss and foreign officials, including about the Ukraine war, fell into foreign hands. Now, this hack was discovered during the summer um, Tory leadership campaign, but the news was suppressed. The government also said... And had a robust cyber threat protection in place. The spokesperson also added that the government, quote, did not comment on individual security arrangements. Um, basically, um, talking to Sky News, Michael Gove of um, Leveling Up basically said that uh, he did not know the full details, quote, of what security breach, if any, took place, end quote. But he said that the government took these issues incredibly seriously. So, details about this hack were suppressed by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Cabinet Secretary Simon Case. The mail 
email um, on this past Sunday, literally like today, um, cited that basically they there was a news blackout that was imposed by Mr. Case as a result of this. And obviously hacking a prime minister, or in this case, a foreign secretary, soon to be back then prime minister for a very short period of time, is a huge, huge thing. I've read other reports that say the Russians may have been involved in this. We're not sure. Now, obviously, this is not the first case of a national leader getting hit. If you recall the Pegasus infection that wormed its way through Apple iPhones for years, uh, basically being sold by the NSO group out of Israel, had hit basically leaders around the world, including Angela Merkel uh, of Germany. She was at the time the chancellor of Germany. So this is obviously a huge, huge thing. We're going to see where this goes, but we have to understand that our leaders are under threat. Our leaders are under attack. And when they are, let's say, refusing to go through proper cybersecurity, um, you know, outfits, training, all these kinds of things, using hardened phones, etc., we have a huge problem there because like them, uh, or I should say like the rest of us, they fall for phishing scams. They are, but they are targeted significantly higher than, than most people on the planet. So this is a huge thing. Make sure, make sure, make sure you're locking these things down. You've got good cyber hygiene. If you're listening to me and you are some kind of elected official, moving on. Our other finally, and this one, oh, this one, this one's embarrassing for the cybersecurity community. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. This sucks. This is the Australian Institute of Company Directors. They threw a conference, uh, cybersecurity conference recently, and oh boy, we got to talk about this one. Here's what's going on. The Australian Institute of Company Directors, known as AIDC, had some solid names lending support to the launch of their institute's new set of, quote, cybersecurity governance principles, end quote. It's obviously a very hot topic down under right now in the wake of the Optus and Metabank private data breaches. Those are huge. Those were huge uh, for Australia, including the federal minister in charge, Claire O'Neill, and Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Center CEO Rachel, Rachel Fall were basically attached to AIDC's new cyber initiative. So it's obviously less than ideal when their online conference this past Monday to launch these principles was hacked, leaving the Institute's boss, Mark Rigotti, and LinkedIn, which was the platform hosting this event, with basically a PR nightmare. Now, here's what's going on with this, and this is, oh, this is depressing, just coming as a cybersecurity professional here. Thousands of would-be participants began to get kind of angsty, uh, antsy, I should say, when they uh, tried to log in for the 1 p.m. start of this conference, and it didn't go live on schedule. Now, as the comments from waiting participants in chat began to mount, a fake Eventbrite link, which basically many unsus unsuspecting users clicked on, was posted in the LinkedIn chat function asking for credit card details, leading the Institute to plead with participants not to try to use any of the links posted in the chat. Now, when an official-looking AICD link appeared in the event, some users who hadn't learned their lesson the first round tried to follow it, only to complain that it didn't work, and eventually about 30 minutes into this whole mess, the Institute bowed to the inevitable and they just canceled the entire event. Now, Mr. Rigotti said that Monday evening that it was unclear if any credit card details had actually been handed over and urged anybody affected to contact their credit card issuers, obviously. And I quote, the AICD apologizes sincerely for the unacceptable issues with the LinkedIn live event. And this is absolutely depressing. I mean, you go to some conferences and everybody's hacking everybody. You know, black hat, fine. Okay, whatever. But this is literally just, hey, let's go talk about Australian data breaches and new governance laws and all this kind of stuff and everybody cybersecurity professionals want to hear this and you're sitting in chat and you're bored and you're talking with people well somebody started fishing the entire cybersecurity community that was watching this 
and we may have had some of our colleagues hit. This is just embarrassing for the industry, you know, my beloved industry. And quite frankly, I just did a video the other day on how all burned burned out we are. So I believe people are like, oh, okay, I'll just click it, assuming it's real. And here we go. But we all have to maintain vigilance. So it's not just us, you know, blathering on about security controls. For the rest of you, we have to practice what we preach. And that's something that we, we just obviously need a little bit of help on as well. But there you go. I'm not pulling any punches. It's a black eye to the cybersecurity community. I hope the AICD does put on an event. And I hope they've got a pretty good phishing filter in the chat next time they do this. Those were your breaches of the week. Were you affected? Let me know. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment, where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP, or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And this week's deep dive is, well, it's pretty timely. We've got an election coming up. And depending on when you're listening to this, we've either got days or maybe about one week or so to the midterm election. And that's gearing up to be rather contentious. I don't think anybody really is going to argue with that. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Today, I want to talk about disinformation and misinformation online. Now, I have to start with this, and this is basically, I'm not, not, not basically taking this from the perspective of one political side or the other. I, I want to make that very clear. I want to talk about how disinformation is becoming pervasive and driving a wedge into society as, as it's literally creating two different realities for us. I think everybody kind of knows this. Everybody kind of understands this. Everybody has somebody in their life, I don't care if it's a relative, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, whatever it is, that basically has a different set of beliefs on the actual facts of something that happened. This is what we are talking about. My goal here is to give everyone evidence of how much disinformation is out there in the hopes that when you read anything, post it online, you can healthily approach it with skepticism, healthy skepticism, instead of confirmation bias initially, and then work to confirm it's true. And what I mean by confirmation bias is, okay, you see something from the right, or you see something from the left, and basically it maybe it's fake, or it's misinformation, or it's disinformation, and if you're on the right and you see it from the right, you say, aha, it is good, but if you see it on the left, and if you see it from the left and you're on the right, now you're like, well, I'm skeptical about that. Whereas I'm talking about taking all information from the left and the right and being skeptical until it's verified, until you can confirm it's true. And so I want to break this down basically by the two largest platforms that are driving the worst of the worst of misinformation and disinformation in society. And we're going to start with TikTok. Because TikTok obviously is the largest fasting, growing, largest, fast, largest, fastest growing, most expanding social media platform out there. Now, Futurism, the publication, had a great write-up on this. And so I'm cribbing and paraphrasing and sometimes downright quoting them. And here's what's going on with TikTok. Because if you didn't know, outside of all the issues I've mentioned on this radio show, if you're a longtime listener, 
This is another problem that we've got because according to a new report from Global Witness and NYU's Cybersecurity for Democracy team, TikTok is absolutely terrible at filtering out harmful misinformation regarding elections and politics. Now, the report actually tested TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube, all of which performed, quite frankly, poorly at detecting and removing misinformation-laden uh, advertising content uploaded by these researchers. And so basically what they were doing is they were uploading demonstrably false information uh, you know, as advertisements to see if they could get them through TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube. And so... TikTok basically was, as I mentioned, the worst offender out this. Now, out of these, TikTok, like I said, proved to be the worst. After uploading a ton of ill-informed, potentially dangerous advertisements for approval, the researchers found that 90% of those fake ads were ultimately approved by TikTok. Now, although the report is still preliminary, uh, that is basically an incredibly alarming figure, especially considering how quickly TikTok's growth has outpaced that of other platforms in recent years. It's very popular with younger people, meaning we are training essentially a generation with misinformation and disinformation, and that is a huge problem. And don't take my word for it, because Olivia Little, co-author of the report, talking to The Guardian said, and I quote, This year is going to be much worse as we near the midterms. There has been an exponential increase in users, which only means there will be more misinformation TikTok needs to proactively work to stop or we face risking or we risk facing another crisis now per this report the fake advertisements ranged in what might be cons basically considered a levels of severity so some for example contain misleading details like incorrect election dates some included misleading or false voting requirements others still use language that outright discourage citizens from voting in the midterms at all and while a failure to basically filter out that much false and therefore inherently dangerous material is a bad look for any platform, it seems especially so for one that's prided itself on its policies regarding election content and political advertisements. Now, TikTok's loudly made clear in the past that its policies do not allow for any paid political ads. Any verified political accounts are automatically disqualified from using pay-to-play tools available to influencers. And just this past August, midterms obviously down the road from August, or a couple of months away when we're there, the platform announced new and improved policy changes designed to tackle the misinformation threat. Now, it's also worth noting that this is the second time that TikTok has explicitly come under fire for basically for lack of a better term, threatening American democracy in recent days with all of this disinformation. And understand that this is exactly what it is. If you've got hyped up fear and paranoia, you are literally threatening the underpinnings of what makes a democracy stable, such as free and fair elections. Now, the same day that this report was officially released, it was also revealed by Forbes that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, had actually been planning on using the app's location data to track and spy on on the physical locations of quote-unquote specific U.S. citizens. I actually did a daily video and podcast on that. It's unclear for the record if that ever came to fruition, but Forbes received internal documentation that showed that TikTok basically was going to be a surveillance app for specific people. Was that politicians? or those journalists? Uh, who were they going to track? These are things that, that we just have no real knowing until we find a whistleblower or a leaker for this. Now, as The Guardian also points out, 
TikTok's remarkably tailored algorithm is inextricably linked to its misinformation failures. Like any of the platform's popular dance trends, misinformation can go very viral very quickly, as was recorded in a report from, interestingly enough, Mozilla, the nonprofit, during Kenya's elections in August. And I was actually looking at that back in August. I think I mentioned on the radio show, definitely in the daily podcast, that they were seeing just absolute rampant disinformation. And we've seen disinformation campaigns like this. A genocide in Myanmar due to disinformation on Facebook is one of those just most horrific examples of this. Now, on top of this, Helen Lee Boigi, and I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, she heads a media literacy platform called Reboot, or the Reboot Foundation, and I quote her, if the TikToks of the world really want to fight fake news, they could do it. But as long as their financial model is keeping eyes on the page, they have no incentive to do so. That's where policymaking needs to come into play. And I completely agree with Helen here. That is a huge, huge thing because we can look at the past previous top worst offender that is number two still, but still going strong in the misinformation and disinformation category, and that is Facebook. That is the other platform that I want to talk about here today. They aren't doing so well either on this front, as I've mentioned over and over and over past the years, and the disinformation and misinformation has just been absolutely rampant on Facebook as well. Now, in an effort to address this basically dangerous situation and safeguard the election, Meta, a aka Facebook, has basically has to make essentially like rapid course corrections, including investing more in content moderation staff, rooting out accounts that are promoting conspiracies, poll rigging, false information about voting hours and locations, and on and on and on. At this point, it's basically too late. Like I said, you're listening to this probably just less than a week away from the election, if not maybe on election day, depending on what station you're listening it to. So we let's go through the list here, uh, basically, of the just enormous failures of Facebook. Now, this was put together by USA Today, so I'm switching from futurism and cribbing now from USA Today, but this was, I mean, just, yes, 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 just checking every box as I track Facebook on a regular basis for this radio show and my also my daily work. So here is how just Facebook has failed to fix its problems and basically is now becoming a, a fundamental threat to free and fair elections. I think this is... A, a huge, huge thing. So first things first, Meta has cut its election integrity staff by 80%. They had 300 people. They are now down to 60. And that is according to the New York Times. This means fewer experts on hand to detect election lies, voting misinformation, and foreign interference in the midterms, and or, or, or just putting in place the safeguards to stop them. And think about this. When you have a population of over 300 million, hundreds of million of which are on Facebook, they only had 300 people looking at the elections for the entire nation, the U.S. nation, not to mention the world. <clears throat> and that, that 300 went down to 60 that is dismal. That that is a that is not even a rounding error. Crazy in terms of the size of the team that they actually need. Now, on top of this, and this is the other point that they made, is that many uh, Spanish language pages that were pushing disinformation about voting integrity since the 2020 election are still up on Meta platforms, even though their English language counterparts have been taken down. The content ranges from baseless claims about voting machines to essentially lies about dead people 
people voting. All of this is specifically designed to mislead or suppress votes of the Hispanic community. And part of the problem that Facebook has always had on a tangent to USA Today is that they've never had enough foreign language speakers, meaning Facebook was founded in English. Mark Zuckerberg knows English, et cetera, et cetera. And so as Facebook went into other languages around the world, Spanish, Arabic, you know, Farsi, you take your pick, Japanese, they have not kept up with the translators or or those teams as well. Now, on top of this, and the next point is, is that the Change in Terms Coalition recently shared with Facebook posts that target and harass election workers, as well as posts labeling the January 6th riot at the Capitol as a hoax. The Global Project Against Hate and Extremism has actually identified ongoing efforts by extremist groups um, and, and known election disinformers to use social media platforms to threaten election workers, threaten candidates, spread 2020 election conspiracy theories, demonize immigrants, uh, basically attack black and brown communities, and intentionally confuse voters in six battleground states. That is a huge, huge thing as well. And again, this is not political. I do not consider extremism as part of the political ideology. You know, this is this goes above and beyond the debate of, you know, well, should we have a tax cut? Should we not have a tax cut? Should we increase taxes? Should we not increase taxes? We are talking about actually threatening, threatening election workers, threatening candidates that one group or another disagrees with. This is the antithesis of the political system. We should all agree all agree that extremism and political violence is something that cannot be condoned in society. And look at how it's spreading on Facebook as people are tracking it, as groups are tracking this. Now, on top of this, and this is another point, is that researchers and academics face widespread problems accessing election information with the CrowdTangle tool that measures the flow of content across the platform. And Facebook has fewer public-facing information guides on the election than it has in previous cycles. They've been winding this down. I talked about this before. So, for example, New York University data researcher Laura Edelson, whom Facebook cut off from accessing this data, recently said that the platform's lack of data transparency represents a very real problem to those trying to basically alert users to the ongoing creation and spread of anti-democratic content. And so that is another problem that we've got. The, the actual mechanisms they had to start tracking the flow of misinformation and disinformation as it circulated around Facebook is a project that they're actually shutting down on top of cutting their election integrity staff from 300, which was small to begin with, down to 60. Now, on top of this, and this is another point, Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, recently indicated that he was considering allowing Donald Trump back onto the company's platforms in January, in spite of basically right now uh, Donald Trump on his own platform, True Social, has basically been re- like I not retweeting. I think they call it retruthing things like uh, QAnon conspiracies and all these kinds of things. That is obviously a huge issue. Now, I'm not, again, talking about the president here of the United States. I'm talking about basically the spread of essentially conspiracy theories that that are baseless. Now, you might love the president. You might hate the president. That is not my business. That is not my concern. Uh, You know, we can have a debate on, on what is actually free speech. Should he be allowed back on Facebook and Twitter and all of these kinds of things after essentially receiving lifetime bans in the wake of January 6th? That is not my point here. My point here is that If, let's say, Donald Trump does come back and with him comes 
basically a wider audience for things like QAnon conspiracies and all of these different kinds of things, then we've got a bit of a problem here because now disinformation is running rampant. And you may believe all of the QAnon stuff, but understand, I have yet to see any real proof of this. All of these things are are are, are in the ether, if you will, but with, without anything concrete. You know, not to mention things like anti-Semitism and everything else that we're seeing on a rise right now. There was a recent uh, issue in, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, where basically people were like like laser displaying on, on I think it was like a stadium and a building and all of that. Um, and I believe the quote was Kanye West was right about the Jews. I mean, obviously, it's these kinds of things that that are deeply concerning because we are talking about political violence, uh, you know, and the foundation that really supports and encourages that. So this is a huge, huge thing. Now, on top of that, and I continue on, Meta continues to exempt politicians from its fact-checking program. They have third parties that will fact-check. This allows politicians to run advertising with false claims. Now, recent research found that Meta's ad library, which it supposedly uses to track all political ads on its platform, can't even correctly determine what constitutes a political ad and what doesn't. And interestingly enough, when Mark Zuckerberg was questioned about this a while back, um, you know, basically by, I believe it was a member of Congress who asked asked him, hey, if I, you know, if I post something demonstrably false on my on my account and I decide to pay for advertising for it, are you going to stop me? And Mark Zuckerberg said no. I mean, so this is obviously a huge thing as well. We have politicians right now that are running for office, you know, that basically are are looking at undermining or fundamentally changing how elections work. Again, 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 I'm not getting political here, but but we have to have a bipartisan basically acceptance of changing anything. We can't force a change. And that is a huge, huge problem because what we're doing is alienating one side or the other. So this is this is obviously an, an, just an absolute mess. Now, in 2020, Meta, obviously then Facebook, acceded to pressure to stop election misinformation and implemented basically what whistleblower Francis Haugen later called a break glass measure designed to slow the spread of the worst of the information uh, misinformation during important elections in times of crisis. Now, this included changing the platform's news feeds to uprank credible news sources in an effort to drown out misinformation. So when you're going from that like really, really sketchy, uh, you know, um, sketchy, uh, you know, website that, you know, is just, just not fact checking, not linking sources, not doing anything and saying some outrageous things, you know, like, for example, JFK Jr. is alive and well and coming back. Well, that's something that wouldn't be upranked. You'd uprank a, a news source that has an editorial process, a vetting process, all these kinds of things that can confirm that, yeah, no, JFK Jr. actually died. And that really is a conspiracy that's going around right now. So it's crazy. So they should start basically using, I think, that break glass measure. And again, we are days, literally days away. I mean, it is it is Monday. It is Halloween as I am sitting here broadcasting on my first broadcast. And you're probably hearing me after Halloween. But this is what we're talking about. So here are the things that essentially Facebook can do to really, really start fixing this issue in the long run. 
And this would also go for TikTok as well, but we're gonna we're gonna start with with Meta here, and I should really be calling them Meta because now they are Meta, even though Facebook is their product, and blah blah blah. But here are some core points again laid out by USA Today that I thought were absolutely great. Uh, you know, I, I've added a little bit here, but for the most part, they had a really good list. So the first one is Meta must prioritize credible news and information in its feed by boosting the algorithm tied to its news ecosystem quality. That's an internal news rating system that assigns a higher value to quality reporting and by default down ranks hate and misinformation basically they took that measure across platforms following the 2020 election uh, to see if that was in place that was part of the break glass i believe now on top of this Meta can reject any advertising that delegitimizes election outcomes at a national, state, and local level, including from candidates themselves. It can ban volatile accounts and remove all posts that incite election violence. Now, I'm all for that. I really am. But here's the thing. They already have some of these things in place, but I don't think they're good. I think overall what what Meta needs to do is just ban political advertising altogether. I have a public Facebook account. You can go follow me there, etc. I've occasionally boosted posts. You know, maybe it's something I've written or something along those lines. And if something I've written, let's say, has some kind of political tint to it, meaning like let's analyze the politics as it relates to cybersecurity, for example. I literally just wrote an article on that. When I try to boost it, Facebook says I cannot boost it because it's political in nature, and if I want to do that, I've got to give them my driver's license, and then they're, they're going to mail me a card. Uh, I believe it is that you know I have to validate and all of that. I mean, it's they're they're trying to put some of these things in place, but why not just ban all political advertising altogether? I think that is basically the the way the way they can do that. Meta can also, and this is the other point they make, is reject any advertising that delegitimizes election outcomes at national, state, or local levels, including from the candidates themselves. You know, it can ban those kinds of counts as well. So, I mean, I think that is a huge, huge thing. And I think I just mentioned that, but it's just, I can't really stress that enough. Now, on top of this, Meta should prioritize a review of possible harassment of election workers, which is happening across its platforms. The company is well aware that this is happening, but many of these threatening posts actually remain up, according to studies. So, so like I said, that that is another huge thing as well. I mean, we've seen in the last couple of years just was bewildering to me, uh, just even in my own neighborhood here in uh, the Chicagoland area, that my local school board was actually getting death threats. You know, they were actually getting death threats over things like mask mandate and all of that. And then that morphed into, I think it was critical race theory, which is not being taught in the schools, according to the school administrators, and on and on and on. So so we have so much stuff going on. And when we are threatening election workers, and we've seen a ton of election officials and election workers and poll workers quit, God forbid they are replaced with people that are hyper-partisan or extremists that will essentially say, well, I'm just going to exclude any vote I don't like and include only the ones I want. Want or immediately question everything, which then ties up the election for months, you know, causing chaos. I mean, these are these are things that I think are a huge, huge problem. And finally, 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 and I thought this was a really good point by USA Today, Meta can listen to itself, can listen to its own civic and integrity team's recommendations for the 2022 election that they haven't fully implemented yet. But they can also include crucial steps like dialing back reliance on what the company calls downstream, quote, meaningful social interactions, end quote, that spark engagement, but can also drive the spread of misinformation. Other studies have shown outside of USA Today, other studies have shown that essentially what actually gets 
the most traction, aka the most money, the most ad generating revenue for Facebook are those articles that are the most incendiary are those posts from everybody's crazy uncle that basically turns up to 11, the JFKs are alive and et cetera, et cetera. The anger is what sells. And that is, I think, just deeply disturbing because what we are not seeing are critical thinking. We are not seeing people move beyond their confirmation bias. And that's a huge problem. I mean, think about this. If I'm in my own ecosystem, anything that, let's say, challenges or threatens the authority or capability or or, or, or structure of that bias, that ecosystem automatically becomes suspect in my brain. And, and, and I will give you this one story, and I, I find this to be completely interesting. We recently just had just what was an awful or horrific, if you will, attack. Um, that we saw against um, basically Paul Pelosi. Paul Pelosi, if you didn't hear, uh, he is the husband of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Again, I do not care if you love or hate Nancy Pelosi's politics, but somebody broke into his house, their house, I should say, basically with a hammer. Apparently, he had zip ties in his bag, according to reporting that happened later on, and essentially attempted to assault and successfully fractured um, Paul Pelosi's skull with a hammer. He was also asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Because obviously this is politically motivated. Obviously this person is mentally deranged. Obviously this person does not represent the vast majority of people out there on the right or the left or, or anything else. Clearly this person is on the right on this on this particular incident. We've also seen incidents on the left as well. But my point is, is that as I am talking about those things, as this was unfolding, it was very interesting to see the deflection Elections start from those on the right, meaning, oh, well, you know, I heard that, you know, this was actually a gay lover, a gay prostitute. You know, he was in his underwear. All of these things have been debunked about this or oh, this is just, you know, a, a tactic, a stunt that they are pulling to, to drive more votes. Uh, you know, for for the Democrats come election time and all of that. And I really don't think that that caving in the skull of the the husband of the Speaker of the House is really that. But but this is the insidiousness of what disinformation and misinformation does is that it allows us a framework to essentially absolve our side from culpability in something without recognizing this. The best thing that we could see would be the leaders of both political parties in the United States or any country that has this problem come together and say, we uniformly condone, we uniformly condone political violence of any type. And until we see that, we've got a problem. And until we see, or as we see these conspiracy theories get spun up and these people saying, well, I don't have to condone political violence because this wasn't political violence, we have a problem. And I think this is going to be an issue for a while. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, this was a longer deep dive, but we are coming up into an election that I think is going to be very contentious. I predict we are going to see a lot of, I don't want to say violence, but I think we're going to see a lot of disputes, a lot of fights, uh, you know, over over ballot counting, over things when we historically have just never had these problems, you know, and, and, and here we are. So, so I, I'm just... Very concerned, as I think many of us are, for this election. Hopefully, we'll we'll all be all right. But that was your deep dive of the week, and uh, I hope you take it to heart. But please, please, please have a healthy skepticism on information, even if it is in your bubble. If you're on the left and you're seeing news from the left or the right and seeing news from the right, be skeptical. Confirm it. Make sure it's good. Have a healthy skepticism, not just a skepticism on anything that you don't agree with. And that is your deep dive of the week. 
And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show, and I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time. And I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.